Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, February 12th, we are studying Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Jesus ventures into Gentile territory once again, and there he encounters the unlikely faith of a Syrophoenician woman. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Denzer. Pastor Denzer serves as the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and the Chaplain for the International Center. Pastor Denzer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, it's great to be back with you. Pastor Denzer, as we get started this morning, before we get to the text from Mark 7, we had a listener email come in with a question concerning the term synoptic gospels. Synoptic gospels is a term that I know I I throw around and I know our guests do too sometimes, and it's almost a form of jargon for us. We think we know what we mean. We think everybody knows what we mean, but sometimes we don't take the time to define that term. So can you help us today? Help us define when we say synoptic gospels, what are we talking about? Good question. I think this is a word we've probably heard tossed around, but yeah, definitely have maybe forgotten or just not thought about it and assumed we knew what it meant. So it's good to just refresh this. Uh, so there are four gospels, which some people might consider to be a problem. Uh, why couldn't there just be one story and that's how it happened and uh, we have it nice and clear, especially when you begin to look at the Gospels and see that they don't all just, I mean, it's not like they're four exactly identical accounts of Jesus and his life and his teaching and his ministry that just have four names on them. Uh, so uh, the synoptic Gospels refers to the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke because these three Gospels have a very large amount of their material that is the same. They tell most of the same stories, although they each have their own particular ones that the others don't. Uh, they tend to follow a similar order of the events. Uh, in ancient, uh, in the ancient world, it doesn't necessarily mean that things are all chronological. Sometimes people would tell their stories uh, in a certain order in order to make a different point rather than just give us the blow by blow from day to day. But those three gospels are very similar. They come from the same point of view and that's what the word synoptic means uh, from a similar or the same view. They have a common view of what he does. John, uh, his gospel also has much of the same material, certainly the same general story pattern. We're going from the beginning of Christ's life and his ministry with John the Baptist uh, through his teaching and his healings, uh, his uh, suffering and death and his resurrection at the end. Uh, But John's gospel is quite different, uh, noticeably different in its patterns, in its ordering, and in some cases, even in the stories and and teachings that it chooses to cover. Uh, And so that one is the fourth one, the outlier, so to speak. We also happen to know that it was written later since John was the last apostle to die. So the synoptics, the first three, uh, tend to follow the same story, but why, why different accounts? Uh, well, we see it largely as a actually a benefit, not a hindrance, that we get to see these three particular uh, views, uh, even though they're generally telling the same story and they all are accurate. Uh, they come at it from a different perspective slightly, or to try and emphasize a different point for us as readers. Again, remember, these are written down by the apostles or by their uh, direct servants beneath them, uh, and their work is... Uh, is at the end of their lives, uh, not just a blow-by-blow that they were writing as it was happening. So they, of course, had been preaching about this their whole lives already, their ministries as the apostles. Uh, But when they took upon themselves or when they were asked to write the Gospels, when the Holy Spirit inspired them to write the Gospels as well, uh, they did it uh, from their own particular perspective, and they did it often to impart uh, teaching to the church as well. Again, not that we've haven't heard the story of Jesus or haven't you know sung Jesus loves me, uh, heard the general gist of the whole life of Jesus and his work for our salvation before. We've heard that, 
Uh, but as we read the Gospels, especially if we take the time to sit down and read an entire Gospel, like we're doing here on Sharper Iron, then you get to see that particular perspective. And by looking at it, including how it's different, but also how it's the same or complementary to the other Gospels, we really do get a, a, a even fuller picture of Christ and his life. And in many cases, the fact that we have such a kind of multi-angled view of Christ's work uh, doesn't really bring as many contradictions into our discussion as it does to see how similar they are, uh, which in the in terms of ancient historiography actually uh, is an advantage to their historicity, to, to, to our case for trying to say these are actually true and accurate accounts. We're actually, with the text that we've got today, going to have an opportunity to do a little bit of that examination of two synoptic Gospels. And, and just to remind everyone here that what we're looking at in Mark 7, you could flip to Matthew 15, and you will see the parallel account there in the Gospel of Matthew in, in a very similar order, a lot of similar language. With our text in particular, we'll notice when we put the two side by side, and I would certainly invite you to do this at home if we don't get to every single verse in Mark 7 and Matthew 15. At home, put Matthew 15 and Mark 7. Notice how they complement each other. We'll have an opportunity to do that a little bit here today when we talk about this Syrophoenician woman. So, Pastor Denzer, thank you for that helpful answer concerning the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospels as a whole and what they give us concerning Jesus and his life. We're going to be looking in Mark 7 today, verses 24 through 30, thinking through the context here in chapter 7 and even before, what do we need to know in preparation for reading this particular account? Sure. As I looked at this, uh, going back to chapter 6 is probably an obvious place, the beginning of the chapter, uh, the previous chapter. But we see kind of a big moment when Jesus is at Nazareth, his hometown, and he says, uh, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Uh, kind of a final moment after the beginning section of Mark, where Jesus has been trying to make the point that uh, the, his family, so to speak, really is those who trust in him, those who believe his words and, and, and are faithful to God's word, not necessarily those people he's from, those people he might look like, uh, and those people that he might be directly, uh, physically related to. And so he has this falling out when the, when the people at Nazareth really reject him, uh, and he as a prophet then is rejected. John the Baptist uh, uh, is uh, beheaded by Herod. Uh, this is right after Jesus sends out his disciples to teach and, and gives the suggestion, in fact, that they won't be received everywhere they go. So we see this continuing theme of the prophets being rejected, being persecuted, being unwelcome, even being killed as John the Baptist was, reminiscent of the Old Testament where this had happened. Uh, I suppose you could even see a parallel to, to Elijah, how when Elijah was in great despair, yet uh, he was fed by the ravens, by the work of God, uh, by the, the woman, in fact, in Gentile territory, as it turned out. Jesus also feeds the people, the feeding of the 5,000, the first of his two feedings that are recorded in, again, all the Synoptic Gospels. He walks across the water, uh, uh, which is startling to his disciples, who again show their faithlessness, which is another theme that shows up in Mark. They just don't seem to be getting what Jesus is doing and saying and teaching. Uh, but Jesus nevertheless says, take heart, uh, do not be afraid. Uh, and when he crosses over, he heals the sick in Gennesaret. Uh, yet there are people who are willing to receive his ministry. Uh, among those people are certainly not the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of the Jews who you'd expect to really be excited about the Messiah's arrival. Instead, they're always opposing him. In particular, they're opposing Christ and God himself with their human traditions not that it's a problem for them to have them, but that they've actually put them over and above God's own commandments. And Jesus uh, makes this point very uh, importantly in Mark chapter 7. Maybe that's the most important uh, section of this whole chapter is when he teaches that uh, we're supposed to follow the, the word of God rather than the traditions of men if they're going to oppose each other. And uh, in particular, he was dealing with this washing, the ceremonial 
cleanliness washing. His disciples didn't always wash their hands before they ate, whereas the Pharisees always would do this in a ritual manner. And uh, they're accused of that. And Jesus says, uh, kind of his final point here before our text, look, it's not the external things that make you unclean. It's not food that goes into your body. It's not other people's problems or the influences on me uh, that awaken sin within us. Actually, what is evil comes out of the heart. Uh, uh, what is inside a person and what comes out of him is what defiles him. And Jesus gives the examples. Well, from the heart of man come evil thoughts, uh, immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, deceit, all of these various things. Uh, they don't come from outside of us. Those are things in our heart uh, that then lead to our actions as well. With that immediate context, Jesus talking about what it is that truly defiles, you know, that last statement before we get to our text, all these things come from within and they defile a person. And then we're going to hear in the opening section of our text today that Jesus goes into the region of Tyre and Sidon. Do you think your your average reader of of Mark or or your average Jew at the time of Jesus would have thought to himself, okay, Jesus says what comes out of a, a person, that's what defiles him. He's going into Tyre and Sidon. They're going to be expecting to see defiled people there. But as it turns out, the exact opposite proves true. It seems like that there's a bit of a juxtaposition, I think, that's going on here. Right, exactly. So, um, you know, he's talked about washing. I suppose that one still makes sense to us today. We're very concerned with washing our hands right now. Uh, the one that might not make so much sense to us is these uh, foods that are that are unclean. But uh, many of us are familiar with the fact that Jews don't eat pork to this day. That's commanded there in Leviticus, uh, or forbidden, we should say. Yet Jesus declares all foods clean by what he's saying here. Uh, but the part that is really most offensive to us in our modern times, uh, but that seems to be offensive in a different way to Jesus, is the fact that people themselves are considered to be unclean. It's not just uh, you know, pigs that are dirty animals uh, and Jews are supposed to avoid them. It's also Gentiles. I mean, the actual people, they're supposed to avoid them. They're supposed to stay away from them. Uh, and that's the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's entering into the Jew, into the Gentile territory. Uh, in fact, there's some great Old Testament history I'm sure we'll be talking about too today uh, that says this is even uh, a dirtier thing. Uh, these people really shouldn't even exist because uh, they were commanded to be wiped out in the Old Testament. And yet here they are. Uh, so no, no self-respecting Jew would ever go into this Gentile territory uh, because as the Pharisees were teaching, that's going to defile you as well, right? Uh, and yet we see, I mean, this is why it's its not surprising for the reader, I don't think, to go from one kind of defilement talk to another. That is to go from this discussion of cleanliness, of, of Jewish purity laws, and go right into Gentiles and their bad territory. But it, what is strange is that Jesus would be present and, to a certain degree, comfortable with all these things. That he is not washing his hands. And now that he's even going into these regions that no Jew would do. Uh, he's really showing that something unique is happening. And I think we ought to draw the connection that just as he has made this statement about what defiles us is really not where we're from uh, or any of these things, it's something much deeper than that, deeper than skin. It's in our hearts itself. That makes it a universal problem. That's not really a matter of Jew or Gentile. It's a matter of sinner and righteous person uh, and and. If we remember what Paul taught, uh, which he himself learned from Christ and from uh, Peter and, and the rest of the apostles, right? It's that uh, it, it's it's that Jew and Gentile alike all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then all are justified by faith through Christ Jesus as a free gift. Let's take a look at the text we've got from Mark chapter 7 today, beginning at verse 24. And from there he... Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. That's the text for today, Mark 7, verses 24 through 30. Pastor Denzer, you mentioned as we were talking about the setting of this account that Tyre and Sidon, yes, it's a Gentile territory, but for the reader of the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon is going to evoke a little bit more emotion than just that's a Gentile territory. There's a little more a darker connection to Tyre and Sidon. What, what's that background that we need to know? Sure. So Tyre and Sidon is the region that's northwest of Jerusalem, of the Jordan River, and of Galilee, which is where Jesus does most of his ministry. So it really is quite a jaunt that Jesus takes. If he goes all the way to the coast, Tyre and Sidon kind of is known as this coastal territory, Phoenician territory, and uh, Syria, not to be confused with Assyria. So north and west toward the coast of the Mediterranean is where this is. You know, think about the, the very early history of this. Uh, we go all the way back to the time of Abraham and the patriarchs, and then on into the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, leaving Egypt, going uh, kind of in a circuitous route, right, out into the uh, Sinai Desert, and then they come back, enter from the east, cross the Jordan into this whole giant territory, which, you know, is Israel in the Gaza Strip today. All of this territory is Canaanite territory. And the command when Joshua led Israel into the the promised land, the land of Canaan, is that they were to destroy every single man, woman, and child. Uh, we remember Rahab got special treatment that she was spared when they conquered Jericho, but everybody else is supposed to be put to the sword. Uh, God really wants to wipe out these people. Why? Uh, well, if you read the kinds of things that they were doing at that time, I mean, child sacrifice was no small matter for them. They really are abominable people. And what the Lord had uh, in mind was to protect his own people from what did in fact happen, which is they were tempted to go in with the uh, people, to, to intermarry among them, and most importantly in that, then to adopt their gods and their ways of worship, uh, which are an affront to the true God, uh, but which also bring them into all of these horrible uh, practices that defiled them as well. So uh, Israel's own backstory on this is uh, certainly about being defiled, uh, and that's a defilement of the heart, that they actually no longer had the Lord and his word as their primary uh, object of trust. So that's all the way back in the time of uh, Moses, the patriarchs, and the conquest of Canaan. Once we go a little farther into the time of the prophets and the kings, uh, then we see some of that intermarrying really coming home to roost. The most, uh, the most uh, notorious situation uh, was the time of King Ahaz and Jezebel, right? Uh, this is the time when Elijah is driven out uh, when uh, they try to kill him. Jezebel is the notorious uh, pagan queen uh, of, of uh, the king of Israel. And, uh, and her area was this specific coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. So you have all sorts of uh, uh, Gentiles, enemies of Israel, the ancient uh, enemies of the people of Israel, whether you're thinking uh, Philistines, uh, Tyre and Sidon and these pagans, the Canaanites even before the conquest, and, uh, and then as the name Phoenician kind of suggests, uh, these trading peoples all around the Mediterranean once you get to the Greek times and the Roman times, which is the time of Christ. The the mention of Jezebel particularly and Elijah as well brings to mind a little bit that you know Elijah I believe he goes into this region himself when he he when the drought comes in First Kings seventeen and there's a a miracle that he does there well I, I suppose the the miracle is that the he he asks for the bread from the from the from the widow there and she feeds him first. And then she and her son also eat. And I wonder if there's if there's some connections that we should draw between this account and what Elijah does in that account too. I'm just kind of putting it out there for the time being. If you want to respond to it now, you can. If but I'm, I just that's a, an account that I wonder if there's. Well, I, I've always kind of wondered if this woman that we meet here in this text, if she knew 
that account from what Elijah had done. And that's why she comes after Jesus because she knows that there's a, a connection. I, that's just something that's always, uh, when I, whenever I hear this text and the Tyre and Sidon connection, I, I can't help but be drawn to that account from first Kings 17. Yeah. Our listeners, if they want to uh, look and explore this idea a little more, we'll want to look in first Kings uh, probably starting around uh, chapter 17 chapter 16, before it talks about Ahab. I hope I didn't misspeak either earlier. Ahab and uh, his wife Jezebel, uh, who serves Baal and worships him and brings all of this uh, evil things into Israel. There's the famous statement, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. Uh, this is like a real affront, right? Yeah, and that's when Elijah is driven out, when he goes into Gentile territory, when he goes to Zarephath, and he uh, is uh, uh, helped by that woman when he heals her son, uh, the widow, and then eventually is strengthened to come back. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of connections there. And uh, even though we don't know if this woman is a widow uh, for sure, uh, it definitely draws connections to it, right? She's got her and the child. That's the only one that's mentioned. And, uh, and she's begging for this prophet uh, to uh, heal her. Although I suppose we should make the point to say she seems to have more faith and, and trust in Jesus as a prophet than that uh, widow of Zarephath did at certain times to Elijah. Mm. Yeah, her, her faith is, is quite striking. And I, I, know we'll, I know we'll talk about that. Just one, this is as we were talking earlier with the Synoptic Gospels and that Matthew records this in Matthew chapter 15. Just even a quick glance between Matthew 15 and Mark 7 will show that Matthew gives us a bit more details on this text as a whole. But Mark does include this one detail here at the beginning, which honestly I I had forgotten until I was reading it in preparation for our conversation, that when Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon, Mark tells us that Jesus actually enters a house, which just that... That in and of itself, even before he starts dealing with the the woman there who requests his help, the fact that he's going to this territory and then goes into a house there, again, he's, he's, he's like, he's breaking the rules. He's, he's doing that unexpected thing of, of entering into this Gentile, really bad territory, and he's going to stay in a house there for a while. It, it just, it, it really struck me as I was reading it. He, he wants to stay hidden. This is a theme we've seen in the Gospel of Mark throughout. He, he kind of, he goes around and is not trying to draw attention to himself necessarily, although the crowds follow him. He's unsuccessful. And immediately, there's Mark's favorite word. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. We're, we weren't expecting this, I don't think, but this is what happens. It, it strikes me that this woman has a daughter with an unclean spirit. Now, the word unclean there is not the same that Jesus was using in the previous part of Mark 7. But it, you know, we've just been talking about defilement, clean and unclean. And here in Gentile territory, uncleanness and, and the demonic, that's still attacking. And as, as you were saying earlier, Pastor Denzer, the problem for both, for Jew and Gentile, is the same. They're dealing with uncleanness. They're dealing with the attack of of Satan and his demons, and, and Jesus in Gentile territory. He's confronted with that that same problem that he's he's seen many times already. Yes. So I mean, there's two there's two points to be made, I guess, about Jesus going into the house. One, it makes sense if he's kind of trying to be a little secretive about this, uh, that he wouldn't want to be out in the open, just hanging out at the water cooler or the well. But also the point you make is that Jews ordinarily don't go into the house of Gentiles. And, and very similar to the, the, the widow at Zarephath and much of the Old Testament, which again is a point that Jesus makes, a point that Paul makes in his teaching. It's not as if the Old Testament has ever been entirely hostile to Gentiles. There are Gentiles in Jesus' own uh, family tree, as we see in the genealogies. And there is there are hints of outreach to the Gentiles. All of the great things that Paul quotes in Galatians, uh, you know that uh, that the Lord of the Gentiles, frankly, that Galilee of the Gentiles, which is kind of a general term referring to this whole area, uh, which is where Jesus does his ministry, and then also out to the coasts where this is Gentile territory to the time of Jesus. Uh, that these areas are the places that are going to rejoice 
to see the fulfillment of what the prophets are talking about, uh, which which is Christ himself. Um, so, and in a similar way, just in this very little story, Jesus has already put himself out there for Gentiles. He's, he's taken the first step, we got to say, and put himself there. Uh, and it, it's on these little bits that get tossed out that this woman is bold to come to him. Well, here he is. Why would I not take this opportunity, right? He, he's not running away from me at all. He's not avoiding me, but he's come already to me. So why wouldn't I ask him and seek him and, and take advantage of his mercy that he has? Uh, and that's the exact way as we're going to see she has the conversation with him that really impresses Jesus and leads him to say, absolutely, I'm going to heal your daughter. And we'll pick up that conversation, those back and forth between Jesus and this woman on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're looking at Mark 7 with Pastor Sean Denzer. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, February 12th. We're studying Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. We have Pastor Sean Denzer with us. He serves as the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and the Chaplain for the International Center. Pastor Denzer, prior to the break, we were setting the scene with St. Mark. Jesus has gone into the territory of Tyre and Sidon, a strange thing, a, a very enemy territory would be the connotation, yet Jesus is there, even goes into a house, and word gets out. This woman who has a daughter with an unclean spirit hears about Jesus. She comes, she falls down at his feet, Mark tells us very clearly that this doesn't. This is not a, a Jew who happens to be living in the area, but she is in fact a Gentile, a Syrophoenician. She begs for Jesus' help. Uh, the picture here is is of a, a woman who knows her need, and she is begging the one who she knows has had compassion on others, and and one that she knows will will be merciful. She's begging at his feet, and Jesus' response sounds a little uh, harsh. Aloof at best, harsh at worst. Jesus says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What is going on here? Yeah, I mean, I think at, at face value to us, it sure sounds like he's kind of insulting her, uh, calling her a dog. Uh, in some ways saying, hey, this isn't for you. You are not included, I guess we could say. Uh, and for good reason. Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, Moses is preaching and he talks about what are the rules of engagement here according to the Lord's own command when you enter into the promised land and, and conquer it. Well, it is to put everybody to the sword. Uh, it, it's it's to devote them over to complete destruction, Deuteronomy 20.17 says. And to a certain degree, to bring attention to the fact that there is a Syrophoenician woman, that there is a Gentile still living in these territories, is a bit of a rebuke on Israel. That these were the people they were supposed to wipe out entirely, so that only the people of Israel would be living there. Uh, they're not. They're still around. And archaeo—I think there was even a news story a couple of years ago about uh, they had found uh, DNA testing on uh, some bodies or bones they had found, and they found Syrophoenician blood from these same peoples. Uh, to this day and all over in places in Israel. Well, how could that be? Well, we know from the text of the scriptures, it talks about how they didn't keep this command and they did intermarry uh, with the with the pagan peoples and, uh, and they did fall into their worship of false idols. So all of that's in the background, uh, which, which in a way I suppose makes what Jesus says a little nicer than he could have been. Uh, <laughs> but you're right, he's not, he, he's not immediately welcoming of her uh, and he is a little aloof. Now, there's something going on in here that is worth our time. It doesn't come out so 
so easily in the English. But in the Greek, you can see that there's all of these little words being used. Uh, diminutives uh, is what they're called. But it's to say he doesn't he doesn't use the big word. He uses the little word uh, that's available to him in Greek uh, for all of these things. And the the obvious one is this word dogs. That it's not it's not full grown dogs. Uh, you know, it's not hound or or mutt. It's it's more like the word puppy in English that implies these are uh, pets at the at the biggest or or small dogs, different than wild dogs or street dogs. Uh, and it's hard to to know what this means. You know, on the one hand, if you call somebody little, that doesn't really seem like a compliment. Uh, you know, if I call you uh, a little tyke or uh, okay kid, uh, that sounds a little yeah. off putting. Uh, on the other hand, compared to dogs that are in the streets, that are eating garbage, uh, that maybe are attacking you, uh, a pet, a, a house dog, is a much more favorable picture. Uh, but I think in all the cases, it retains its its insult because a, a dog is not a family member. And that's, in fact, the, the point of Jesus' little almost parable that he said here. The children should be fed first. Uh, we can't take the bread that belongs to them or that ought to go to them and throw it to the dogs. Uh, you know, even if this is uh, scraps from the table, even this uh, dog that uh, has a right to be in the room, uh, it, it's not as if you set the table for them first. And if there's leftovers, you feed it to the kids. Everybody knows it goes the other way around. It's striking to me. And I, again, this is one of those things that I, I'm just now noticing. And, and again, the way the Mark records it, he says, Jesus says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That word, that word first, I, I guess I just missed it. I, I think I'm, I'm more used to the way Matthew writes, where Jesus says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It seems to me that word first leaves the door open, not to, and, and not to take out the the striking nature of Jesus' words. I think we we ought to be taken at least a little aback by the way Jesus, like, whoa, I didn't I didn't see that one coming as much. But I think that word first leaves the door open a little bit that, that Jesus is not saying no, but he's saying the children eat first. Also I don't true. know, what do you think? Also true. I, so Jesus is always trying to get away from everybody, the crowds, uh, the demons sometimes. You know, you get the impression he's just really worn out. And uh, we, we see the human side of Jesus in Mark's gospel. And, uh, and he needs a break. And here it's kind of funny almost, I suppose you could say, that he would run into Gentile territory to get a break from all these Jewish crowds that are chasing him because he knows, you know, they're just not going to go that far with him. So at least he can get a reprieve. But, uh, but shoot, the demons are here too. And uh, now this woman's pestering him. And uh, so he's, you know, to speak in a human manner, seems like Jesus is just trying to relax and here he's interrupted again. Um, but but the woman has seized on it, right? He's He did come. He didn't disappear. He didn't uh, leave his flesh and go back to heaven or something, which I suppose is always within the Lord's power. Uh, no, he, he, he went into this territory and she has both the promises of Gentiles who've received help from the Lord in the past uh, as well as hear this word first. I, I think you're definitely right. Um, you know, children makes us think of the children of Israel, right? These are the descendants. These are the heirs, at least the firstborn. Uh, so the children get taken care of. Uh, the slaves in the house, you know, get taken care of too, but but not to the same degree as the children. Uh, the dogs, right? They're not going to go hungry or starve in the middle of the living room, but they're not family members. Uh, and that's the impression you get here. Uh, is that, that she's allowed to be a God-fearer, but there's still an ordering. This is exactly what St. Paul writes at the beginning of Romans, his his great book that's written to Gentiles in particular, uh, or or to at least a Gentile city of Rome. And what does he say, right? Uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation for all who believe it. But there's still an ordering there, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Yeah, I, I think that that's something that, you know, 2,000 years of church history, perhaps, have we've lost a sense of, of appreciation and wonder at as to how, like, the church is so filled with Gentiles, thanks be to God for that, that I think we've we've forgotten that that ordering, and we, we fail to 
to appreciate its importance at this time in in the time of the New Testament. How do we? How do we? I mean, why is it important for us to hold on to that ordering? Like, well, of course, Paul first for the Jew, now then for the Gentile. But like, why is that still important today? And even in a text like this. Yeah, I think that's important to clarify. It's not important as if the Lord uh, has some kind of chosen people to this day. Some people are confused about that, or or they think that the Jews are always going to be saved no matter what, just because God likes them more and uh, and uh, He sent Jesus to take care of these Gentiles or something. Uh, no, far from the truth. That's the point of uh, what Peter right, uh, says at the Council in Acts. That's what Paul is always at pains to say in his epistles. Is Everybody, Jew or Gentile, is going to be saved in the same way by faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done by his death and his resurrection for us. Uh, the ordering has to do with uh, the fact that the Lord has, through this people, brought about the Messiah, uh, that he was born uh, of descendant of Abraham and of David and all these uh, patriarchs to whom the promises were given, but also that... Uh, the Jewish people always had the promises, right? They had the scriptures. They were not blindly or accidentally uh, stumbling over uh, the, the prophets that happened to wander into their territory when they're <laughs> escaping the people who are chasing after them, right? Uh, Paul talks about this in, in Romans and Galatians quite clearly. The ordering is important because it, it shows that the Lord's mercy is is really beyond our expectation, right? It's, it's amazing that he's merciful to his own people, who he said from the outset he loved. Uh, he made them his people and made himself their God. And he's always going to be faithful to them, like a, like a faithful husband to his faith, uh, unfaithful wife. It's amazing to see that he would remain faithful to an unfaithful wife like Israel. But the Gentiles, he has no such promises, no such fealty, no such history, so to speak, with. Uh, and yet the Lord has also brought us in. And and as you pointed out, to what great effect that at this point, uh, here we are in the wake of uh, the purification of Mary and the presentation of our Lord on February 2nd, uh, where we get to hear Simeon's great song, right? He rejoices to see Christ. He's kind of this picture of Israel, although you get the impression he's a really old man who's about to die. Uh, and he's the only one apparently who wanted to come and see Jesus be presented, which is strange. Uh, but what does he say? He says this is the uh, a light to enlighten the Gentiles. They're kind of dumb and dark. They need some light. Uh, but he's the natural shining glory of Israel. And we look at the world today and we see it. the Christian church is kind of the opposite. Uh, uh, it seems to be the Jews that are, are in need of enlightening to see the light of Christ. And the church still prays for them that they would come uh, to receive the Messiah who was sent for them, in fact. Uh, and it is the Gentiles who have treated the Lord as a great glory and have been glad to receive him. And and that's what happens in this text with this particular Gentile woman. She hears the Lord's words, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she responds in faith. And, and this is what she says in verse 28 of the text. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Take us into this woman's answer. I like it. So uh, Jesus says this in many ways throughout the Gospels, uh, probably clearest as we kind of see the way he sends out his disciples, that they're supposed to go only to the people of Israel first. Uh, but then at the end of the Gospels, he says, you know, go out into all the world, beginning at Jerusalem and out into the rest of the world, uh, make disciples of all nations in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Mark has it kind of hidden and embedded in the gospel here and everywhere else, right? That Jesus himself admits, even already, uh, that there's an ordering. He's coming first for the Gentile, uh, the Jews, but then he will also be there for the Gentiles. And for her, that's enough to grab onto it, right? Uh, uh, she's going to be satisfied with the crumbs. Uh, okay, maybe, maybe the full loaf of bread doesn't belong to me because uh, you didn't make the promises initially to, to our people. Uh, but we know you're the kind of Lord who always has more, whose mercy endureth forever and overflows, as we quote from the Psalms. Here's where I think the context is really helpful. This event happens in Mark's gospel and really in the synoptics as well, right in between those two great feedings, the feeding of the 5,000 and shortly after this, the feeding of the 4,000. 
And in both of those, if you remember the stories, uh, the Lord takes a small amount and multiplies it so that there's plenty for everybody. And, uh, and he thinks it's pretty important, at least, that there's even more left over than there was to begin with, so much that he wants it to be gathered up so that nothing will be lost, uh, that the disciples have to take the time to gather up either 10 baskets or seven baskets of the loaves and the fragments that are left over after Jesus feeds these great crowds. So there's a way in which this, this use of this word crumb, similar to the word fragment, uh, is 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 really delicious and really delightful, right? That she seems to have been paying attention to Mark's gospel, right? Or we should say yeah. to the real <laughs> events of Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that she says, hey, there's always more left over. Uh, it seems to be that the Lord delights in feeding and filling people, uh, not in being stingy. And, and that's what she asked for, right? The disciples are clueless. They don't get it. Uh, but but she gets it. Yeah, and, and it's it's really striking, as you said, that the disciples don't get it. Because more than once, Jesus will will ask them, you know, like, didn't you understand about the loaves? <laughs> those And those two accounts are obviously very key events in our Lord's ministry. And to find right in the middle here, this this talk of crumbs is a, a, this is a great pun, delicious. I, I'm sure you, you did that on purpose, right? Yeah, and I think it, well, I mean, I would like to think I can be as good as the, the Holy Spirit writing through Mark. But, but <laughs> this, right. is, this is, I think, the way Mark is a short gospel. Everybody's noticed that. Some people say, well, it's very, you know, that suggests it's kind of low at the evolutionary totem pole. Maybe it's the first gospel. It must be because it's so simple. In a way, Mark's simplicity leaves more to the imagination. And he, he kind of puts some clever puns, some some interesting kind of clues in there. But I think he he delights the mind of somebody who puts two and two together. Uh, and, and that kind of seems to be the way the Syrophoenician woman is herself. Right. So, I mean, and, and so she would have potentially known about the feeding of the 5,000. It's not out of the, the question that she would have known about that event. This is, this is where I, I wonder if that, account from first Kings 17 where the woman the widow in Zarephath eats after Elijah you know Elijah receives the bread and then she and her son eat I I just I, I want to think that 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 account would have been passed down in this area such that it came to this woman and and she's got that going on in the back of her mind too and and in the spirit given faith that she's she's got at this moment, she puts these things together and she sees in Jesus the one greater than Elijah and and knows that, man, if that happened with Elijah and and this guy fed over 5,000 people, then surely the crumbs that he's got for me are, are more than enough. It really is a fantastic confession of faith. And that word crumbs, goodness, like how much is in a crumb from Jesus more than a feast? Well, that's a very important thing to say. You know, crumbs and leftovers, uh, you know, even the way we've been speaking, uh, which would have been very timely for them to really consider these to be leftover people as as pejoratively as you could possibly say that. Um, uh, this is what we see in the Lord's gifts, is that they're not minimal. They're not stingy. Uh, a leftover from him is not a pejorative. Uh, in fact, in these crumbs, everything you possibly could need uh, is delivered to you. Uh, remember, I thought the whole reason she was here was to have her daughter be healed. Now we're talking about food here. Uh, but she recognizes that, you know, even a even a little bit from the Lord, even if it was like a sideways promise to these Gentiles, that would be sufficient. Uh he is the creator of the world or, or think of the widow in Zarephath, right? Uh, that, that I always thought it was rather bold of Elijah to say, you got to feed me first, even though you hardly have anything. Yeah. And, uh, and the natural response would be to say, man, if I give you the more, the biggest portion of it, we're going to have just a teeny little bit left over. And of course, that teeny little bit lasted the whole drought. Uh, and that is the miracle. The Lord doesn't, the Lord doesn't overdo it. <laughs> Unless he really wants to make that point. Here he wants to make the point, great, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it with one hand tied behind my back, right? I'm going to let a little <laughs> crumb last for all this time and make you uh, more well-fed than your neighbors, right? Uh, and, and here she seems to recognize that too, to have a crumb from Jesus, even though she's put it in this humble way, uh, is not actually to be... Uh, 
left wanting, but it is to have absolutely everything that she needs. Uh, and this has come into the church's use as well, especially with relation to the Lord's Supper, but even considering the Lord's death, uh, kind of the, the notion that a drop of Jesus' blood uh, is in fact sufficient to cover over all of our sins, uh, uh, that he has more forgiveness even than we have sins. Uh, and that's the way uh, the Lord's mercy is. It endures forever. It's overflowing. It's, it's not stingy. Jesus then responds to the woman, verse 29, for this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter, and she in fact goes home, finds the child well, the demon is gone. Take us particularly into the words that Jesus speaks to her at the conclusion of the text. Well, I think what's important in Mark's gospel that says it in this unique and maybe a little stilted way in our English here, for this statement you may go, uh, the point is, this is a, this is a theological statement. Uh, if it sounds a little technical, that's f- maybe a good way to translate it, in a sense. Literally, it says, for this word, uh, or it could even be an argument or a reason, the logos that she has. Uh, because of this, uh, her, her, she may go her way, and uh, I will heal you. It is that she comes not just with uh, with a hope, this is not a Hail Mary pass in the kind of uh, colloquial sense of the term. She's not going to a foreign god or a foreign prophet and saying, well, I don't know, none of my magic people could do it. Maybe this magician has the answer. Uh, it's not a last ditch effort. It's, it's not a hope against hope. It's a real theological trust. Uh, that she recognizes that the Lord, uh, a little ambiguous, it could mean sir or it could mean Lord. In this case, given Christ's reaction and given the way her statement kind of grabs Jesus' words and and uh, and makes good use of them, I think she means Lord in the fullest sense of Kyrie and Yahweh from the Old Testament. Uh, she knows that the Lord's mercy uh, is overflowing. And she, I think, does know something about the Old Testament prophets and all of the things they have to say about the Gentiles. And so Jesus draws attention to this. I think this might be a good time to just to hop over to Matthew chapter 15 and, and see the way Matthew tells it, kind of fills in some of these details in a, and kind of gives us the story. I don't know if that's more complicated or, or more simple in a way that he's kind of leaving the details and putting them out for us. Uh, whereas Mark kind of lets us come to them on our own and expects us to be thinking about this and seeing in between the details. First of all, he says that Jesus has kind of a back and forth, and uh, it's not Jesus who's embarrassed or put off by the woman. It's the disciples who, who actually seem to be put off with Jesus by the end of it, that they you know, they really are embarrassed that he won't just send her away or, or heal her or, you know, just don't, just don't be awkward, right? Especially not to kind of tell the suffering woman who's crying and kneeling in front of him, begging for help. And, uh, and he says, nah, nah, can't help you. Sorry. Uh, but when it comes to the end, after she says her great statement, yes, Lord, but the dogs get the crumbs from their master's table. Then Jesus says, Oh woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you believe or as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now compare that to this one. And I think the point is the same. Uh, but whereas Matthew has talked about faith and trust, which is absolutely fine, uh, Mark has put it in the form of she is focusing us in on the object, uh, the, the point and the, the actual content of her faith, which is so important for us to realize. When the Bible talks about faith, it's never talking about, you know, just believing hard, hoping in a kind of Santa Claus faith. Uh, I just determined that this is going to be true and I'm going to kind of you know, hunker down and, and uh, insist on it and, and hope it's the truth, uh, a pious wish. No, this is content. This is a promise that's been made that I'm going to cling to. Uh, this is something that I have learned and I have understood and I have now trusted in, and therefore I'm going to bank on it. Uh, almost to the point of being a little belligerent, which is exactly the way Matthew points it. This woman is persistent. Uh, you know, she can't take a hint. Uh, she won't let Jesus go until he blesses her, exactly like Jacob did uh, uh, when he was wrestling with the Lord at the Jabbok. So here uh, in Mark, we have the special emphasis on her statement, her word. 
uh, that she, in fact, have, has understood something about God and is pushing his word against him, so to speak. Almost as if she's saying, well, this can't be right. You can't be telling me no, because I have promises that you've made. You've got to hold good on them. Uh, and that's exactly the kind of faith that Jesus wants, faith that is bold to pray, that's bold to supplicate God. That, uh, as Luther said once, it's almost as if you ever found yourself in hell, you'd have to call the Lord to come down and hear your appeal and say, but you promised uh, that you're going to redeem me. You said your mercy endures forever. You said that Jesus has come to shed his blood to forgive me all my sins. So this must be a mistake, Lord. Uh, uh, that kind of boldness is is what Jesus prizes in all the Gospels. We see that uh, laid out for us as faith in Matthew. And here he says, you know, ah, yeah, for that word. Yeah, that's exactly the right answer. I, I think the way that Mark concludes matches up very nicely with that. Matthew ends simply that her daughter was healed instantly. But with, it, with the way Mark puts it, she goes home and finds the child. And what's happened? Precisely what Jesus said. The Lord's promise that he had made to her, she banked on it and he did it. His word has authority, which is something we've definitely seen throughout the whole gospel of Mark. Pastor Denzer, we've got just about a minute and a half here to, to wrap things up. Give us the gospel from this text, the good news of Christ crucified and risen for us. Our Lord Jesus Christ has come to shed his blood for every single person. Uh, even though, yes, he has uh, spoken his oracles through the prophets, through the particular people of Israel, he himself is, is the final and complete Israelite. Uh, but he has come to be the savior of all. Uh, he's first for the Jew, but then for the Gentile. And in fact, they and we will be saved uh, alike. That is by faith, by trust in the Lord's mercy, which endures forever. His, his mercy uh, is expansive. Uh, it, it never comes to an end. It doesn't run out. There's always more of it. Uh, there's leftover crumbs. And in fact, even if all you were to get was one of those crumbs at the end, you would have the full Jesus. You'd have all of his salvation and his full forgiveness. Uh, so, so we can learn from this uh, unlikely hero of the faith uh, from her statement and from her trust uh, that the Lord's mercy endures, uh, that his promises are great uh, and they're for all people. Uh, so we should take what the Lord says seriously, and we should definitely bank on it, bank our life on it, bank eternity on it. Pastor Sean Denzer is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and the Chaplain for the International Center, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Pastor Denzer, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 7 or the Gospel of Mark as a whole, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.